In July 1955, local police and border patrol agents flooded major cities across the United States. They detained and deported hundreds of thousands of Mexican residents. While these were mostly undocumented immigrants, they also took people who entered the country legally or were already U.S. citizens, a clear violation of their rights. They were shoved onto overcrowded trains or cargo boats that were later compared to slave ships. Those that didn't die of heat stroke or disease in transit were dumped in random cities around Mexico, oftentimes in places they'd never even been to in their lives. At first glance, today's episode has nothing to do with immigration politics. This is not a case of migrants who went missing. It's about a wealthy American couple who disappeared in the dark of night without a single witness to tell their story. Their disappearance was so sudden and unnerving, people have since assumed they were abducted by aliens. But the truth is likely even darker than that. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing persons case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a couple who mysteriously vanished from El Paso, Texas in 1957. After 65 years, we may finally have some idea of what happened to them. Their names are William and Margaret Patterson. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. William Patterson was always a man with a plan. His father, Luther, said that he was the kind of kid who could negotiate his way out of anything, which is a skill that probably came in handy growing up. He and his four sisters were raised in the semi-slums of Chicago at the turn of the century. And Pat, that's what everybody calls him, was desperate to get out. But I'm going to start today's story at the moment he does just that. It's 1919. 
Pat is 16 years old. He runs away and joins a traveling carnival. He loves something about the job because he travels with the carnival working as a barker for the next 10 years or so until 1929 or 1930. Then, when the carnival stops in Evanston, Illinois, he meets a 5'4 redhead at the Von Dome Hotel who makes his whole world stop. She pours him a cup of coffee and says her name's Margaret. And that's about all I know about her. Margaret's past, her family, when and where she was born, not even her closest friends know her full story. From the time she shows up at the Vendôme to the day she disappears, she seems like she mostly keeps her private life private. But they say men love an air of mystery, which may be part of the reason Pat marries Margaret not long after they meet, sometime around 1931. They spend the next decade traveling cross-country and selling reflex lens cameras, like the ones professionals use. I have no idea how they get into this line of work, but it's the start of their lifelong careers in the photography industry. Pat even becomes a freelance photographer on the side. In 1940, the Pattersons relocate to El Paso, Texas, where a friend says that there's more freelance work to be had, only to find out when they arrive, the money's not so great. In 1944, Pat embarks on a new business venture. He opens Patterson's photo supply company right on Main Street in El Paso, and practically overnight, business booms. Within a few years, it's the biggest print shop in Texas, at a time when photo shops do a lot of business. At one point, the Patterson's business reportedly brings in $350,000 in one year. To put that kind of wealth in perspective, most homes around this time are selling for like seven grand. The Patterson's can buy an entire neighborhood. But all that money isn't going straight into their pockets they hire a team of employees to help run the business. Now, I'm not gonna run through them all, but pay attention to the names I'm about to tell you. They're important. First up is Herbert Roth, a local accountant known for meticulous bookkeeping. The Pattersons hire him to do their taxes and help grow the business. Roth and the Pattersons become good friends and their mutual trust runs deep. Also on the payroll is a lawyer named David Smith, He's essentially on retainer to handle any legal matters if and when they come up. Apart from Roth and Smith, the Pattersons make industry connections. They befriend a man named Duffy Sasser, who owns a chain of photo equipment shops called Duffy's Inc. And through Duffy, they get close to a guy named David Kirkland. Kirkland works for one of Duffy's stores as a manager. He's stationed in Lubbock, Texas but makes the six-hour drive to El Paso every few weeks to check in on Duffy's stores down there. Kirkland and Pat get together whenever he's in town. By 1956, the Pattersons are well-connected and well-liked. They're the unofficial first family of El Paso. They're also filthy rich and not shy about flaunting it either. Like a lot of people who grew up in hand-me-downs, Pat enjoys having the newest version of everything. His suits are $200 each and perfectly tailored to show off his Rolex watch. He drives a brand new 1956 Cadillac. He buys Margaret two mink coats and a $2,000 diamond wedding ring, which is a small fortune at the time. From the outside looking in, you'd think their marriage is perfect. But underneath all that glitz and glam, there's a double life. 
Pat has a girlfriend who lives in Juarez, Mexico, a border town about 30 minutes south of El Paso. Her name's Estefania Arroyo Marfin. She's a 20-year-old waitress at Pat's favorite bar in Mexico. One night in February 1957, Pat drives down to Juarez to visit Estefania at work. He tries to buy her a drink mid-shift, but her manager says no. He doesn't want his employees drinking on the job. Presumably a little drunk, Pat gets upset. The conversation escalates. The argument turns physical. And the bouncer spits Pat onto the sidewalk like he's old chewing gum. Pat must go home with some bruises or something, because it seems like Margaret finds out about her husband's fight in Juarez. Shortly afterward, their marriage is on the rocks. Pat confides in one of his employees that he and Margaret are experiencing friction. And on top of that, Pat stays stateside for the next few weeks on his best behavior. Almost like he's making up for something. While he's home, he fixes up an 18-foot boat he recently bought from a friend. It becomes a pet project for him, Kirkland, and Pat's best friend, Cecil Ward. Cecil's an all-around good guy, maybe one of the few good guys in this story. He owns Ward's Motor Clinic, a garage in El Paso that specializes in servicing Cadillacs. I assume Pat and Cecil first bonded over their shared appreciation for luxury cars. By early March, Pat, Kirkland, and Cecil have the boat in fighting shape. In fact, on the evening of March 4th, 1957, Cecil and Pat start making plans for its maiden voyage. They apparently don't settle on anything specific. They're mostly just in the garage, throwing back a few beers and admiring their handiwork. But Pat invites Cecil to come over the following night. He says Kirkland's stopping by as well. They'll keep the celebration going. Except this hangout never happens. At least not with the three of them. Now, as a quick sidebar, we've pieced this story together using over 70 newspaper articles, police affidavits, and witness statements, many of which contradict one another. So from here on out, things get kind of fuzzy, but I'm going to detail the events as chronologically as I can, beginning with the afternoon of March 5th, the last day the Pattersons were seen. According to David Kirkland, on March 5th, that day, he, Cecil, and Pat are supposed to get together to celebrate. Cecil bails. He says he isn't feeling well. So this leaves Kirkland and Pat to drink, daydream, and tinker with the boat on their own. Nothing special happens. Kirkland goes home at a reasonable hour. Then around 3 a.m., his phone starts ringing off the hook. It's Pat. He sounds grave, but measured like he's trying to hide his panic. He tells Kirkland that he's taking Margaret on an extended vacation. She's been living with alcoholism for a while now, and tonight she's imploded over a picture Pat had in his pocket, one of Estefania. He's gotta help Margaret get over what he calls her condition, but he's not sure when they'll be back. He asks Kirkland to keep an eye on the shop for a while, and Kirkland says, sure, happy to help. Then Pat's like, oh, and if it's not too much trouble, my Cadillac is sitting at Ward's Motor Clinic. Can you swing by around 8 a.m. and ask Cecil to fix the horn and give it an oil change for me? Pat says there's an extra set of keys in the glove box. The set contains the key to the Patterson store, their house, their P.O. box, and the cabin they own at Elephant Butte Reservoir, New Mexico, just in case he needs them. The conversation ends. Kirkland agrees to everything. 
But here's the strange part. Pat lied about one detail in the call. His Cadillac isn't at Ward's Motor Clinic. Not yet, anyway. A few hours later, on the morning of March 6th, a mechanic named Nicholas Alvarez arrives at the motor clinic a little after 7 a.m. At 7.15, Alvarez recognizes Pat's Cadillac coming up the street, but Pat's not driving it. It's a stranger. The guy pulls into the lot, followed by another guy driving a beige Chevy. Alvarez is surprised, but he waves and says good morning. The driver smiles, but clearly isn't in the mood to talk. He tells the mechanic that Kirkland will be by for the car, gets into the other guy's Chevy, and takes off. Cecil arrives at his shop just before 8 a.m., unaware that any of this has happened. When Kirkland shows up a few minutes later, he explains the situation to Cecil. Pat and Margaret won't be back for a few days, so he's going to handle the car for them. He tells Cecil that Pat dropped it off last night, something that we know isn't true, whether Kirkland knows this or not. I don't know why Pat would lie about something so silly, but what I find odd is that Kirkland never mentions the 3 a.m. phone call to Cecil. He doesn't mention what spurred the Patterson's trip. He pretty much just says Pat asked him to check on the car while he was over at the house that night. But regardless of when they last talked, Kirkland's the last known person to speak with Pat before he disappears. Pat's never seen again. And from my research, I think it's safe to say Kirkland definitely knows more than he's letting on. In March 1957, William Pat Patterson reportedly tells his friend David Kirkland that he's taking his wife, Margaret, on an extended vacation. He's hoping the retreat will curb her alcoholic tendencies. But if the Pattersons packed for this trip, you'd never know it. When people go to check on them, their house looks like it's in mid-use. Like they went to grab the mail and fell into a black hole in the driveway. Their suitcases are still in the closet along with their clothes. Neither of them took any money out of their bank accounts in the days leading up to their disappearance. And in the weeks to come, that will remain true. They don't write checks or put charges on any credit cards. But in the immediate aftermath, one theory surfaces about how they could be paying for their vacation. There's a bunch of jewelry missing from their home. Watches, bracelets, Margaret's $2,000 ring. Maybe they decided to sell their valuables for cash. But Cecil Ward immediately thinks something isn't right. Pat and Margaret wouldn't need to do that. To him, the missing jewelry is proof the Pattersons are in danger. But just as he's working up the nerve to go to the police, someone gets a message from Pat. It's March 15th, nine days since anyone in El Paso has seen or heard from the Pattersons. Herbert Roth, the Pattersons' accountant, receives a telegram from Pat that sheds more light on what's allegedly happening. Roth tells Kirkland and Cecil the details. Pat's on an extended vacation with the missus. They don't want to be bothered. Kirkland already knows this, but Pat now wants Roth to oversee the Photoshop's finances while he's out of town. Kirkland will continue to stop in and oversee operations. And as such, Roth should put Kirkland on the payroll for $800 a month while Pat's away. The trip's going to be longer than anticipated. The telegram says they'll be gone for nine months. So Pat also wants their house to be rented out through December 15th. No need to waste an opportunity for more income. 
Cecil thinks all of this is suspicious. He doesn't buy that Pat's the one who sent the telegram, because realistically, it could be from anyone. And even if Pat did call it in, he might have done so under duress. But Roth won't hear it. He shows the telegram to the Patterson's attorney, David Smith, who says it has to be authentic. According to Smith, it mentions confidential information that only he and Pat knew about. Roth also adds that this isn't the first time Pat's gone AWOL for a few weeks, so there's no need for Cecil to overreact. But for some reason, Roth doesn't let Cecil see the actual telegram, and anytime the Patterson's friends or employees inquire about where they are, Roth either tells them to get lost or provides some sort of short, vague explanation. Explanations that, over time, change. As one of Pat's fishing buddies puts it, quote, when I first made inquiry, I was told the Pattersons had gone on a little vacation. Then I was told they went to a convention in Washington, DC. Then I was told they had gone to a Florida resort point. Finally, I was told the Pattersons are expected back in December. The whole thing is a mystery to me. At this point, it feels safe to assume that Roth and possibly David Smith are hiding something. It's just not clear what that something is. Yet. Roth carries out the duties Pat allegedly prescribes. A for rent sign goes up on the Patterson's front lawn. Roth and a real estate agency lease the fully furnished home to the Belsons, a British military family stationed nearby. They sign on the dotted line to stay at the Patterson's place until December 15th, when they're due back. Before the Belsons move in, the real estate company sends professional cleaners to 3000 Piedmont to prepare for the new tenants. But when they arrive, they call the agency to make sure they have the right address. To them, it looks like the house was already professionally cleaned. It's spotless. Except, oddly enough, all the silverware is missing. Kirkland jumps in to explain. He says, that was me. A few weeks ago, I cleared out the drawer. Pat asked me to hold on to the silverware for safekeeping. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's certainly strange. As summer passes, Cecil grows more and more anxious. He feels like Pat and Margaret are in trouble, but he doesn't have proof. Then on a hot afternoon in early August, the Patterson's neighbor, Mrs. Sherwin, notices a filthy, half-starved tabby cat slinking along the edge of her property. She goes outside to check on it and is shocked to discover it's Margaret's beloved cat, Tommy. Mrs. Sherwin can tell something's amiss. The whole neighborhood knows Margaret would never abandon her cat. This is the last straw for Cecil. So on August 15th, more than five months after the Patterson's disappearance, he reports them missing to El Paso Sheriff, Jimmy Hicks. Hicks issues an all points bulletin asking law enforcement across the country to be on the lookout for the Pattersons. But unfortunately, that's about all he can do. The Pattersons allegedly told friends that they were coming home in nine months, possibly longer. So he can't treat this like a criminal investigation. He can ask around and interview persons of interest, but he can't subpoena anyone or get warrants to search private property. That kind of investigation has to wait until at least nine months from now on December 16th. Hicks reaches out to places that Pat and Margaret like to visit, fishing spots in Texas and in Mexico, resorts that they frequented, but nobody's seen them. 
Eventually, Hicks hands over the case to Deputy Sheriff John Frizzell, who starts conducting voluntary interviews with persons of interest. But as predicted, Pat's associates are reluctant to talk. Herbert Roth doesn't want to discuss the telegram, let alone hand it over. And David Kirkland's so cold to officials, he makes Roth look talkative. Even the Patterson's attorney, David Smith, is quoted as saying, even if I knew where they were, I wouldn't tell the newspapers or Jimmy Hicks. Investigators are completely stonewalled until they interview Pat's girlfriend, Estefania. Estefania claims she last saw Pat on the morning of March 6th, the day he disappeared. She tells Deputy Frizzell that it was early. Pat showed up in Mexico, scattered and frantic, alluding to some important events that he wanted to tell her about, but he couldn't elaborate. He just said, quote, when they come for me, I'll have to go in a hurry. He never mentioned who they were. And after he left, Estefania didn't hear from Pat again until late April, when she apparently received a letter from him postmarked in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, I don't know what this letter said, but if this is true, it's huge. It would mean Pat was alive and able to send love letters six weeks after he disappeared. Frizzell thanks Estefania for her statement. It's super helpful. But days later, she recants. She never explains why, but for some reason, she says she feels bad about her behavior. So much so that she offers the sheriff's department 1,600 US dollars of her own money to help with their investigation. She even offers to take out a second mortgage on her home if it will help solve the case. Now, it seems like maybe Pat and Estefania really loved each other. Clearly, she was willing to go bankrupt to save him from trouble. And if we take Estefania's recanted testimony at face value, Pat was on the run from something and risked coming to see her on his way out of town. The question is, from what? And where was Margaret in all of this? I doubt Margaret would have gone with Pat to Mexico to visit his girlfriend. But before Frizzell can make heads or tails of what's actually going on, there's a major break in the case. William and Margaret Patterson have supposedly been found. On the morning of August 21st, 1957, Herbert Roth is traveling to Dallas, Texas. Hours earlier, he received word that Margaret and William Patterson were alive and had been living in Dallas for the past five months. According to Roth's unnamed source, Pat's been in a sanatorium and Margaret's staying nearby. Sanatoriums usually treat long-term illnesses like tuberculosis. So this is of course a little alarming news. But when Roth goes down and pays the hospital a visit, they tell him that no one by the name of William Patterson has ever checked into the premises at all, let alone for an extended stay. Roth is livid. He doesn't appreciate being sent on a wild goose chase, which is important to note because it would mean Roth genuinely believed the Pattersons were alive this whole time. December slowly approaches and anticipation builds throughout El Paso as people wait for the Pattersons' return. Nine months after their disappearance, the tension's so thick you could cut it with a knife. In December, cars slow down as they pass 3000 Piedmont. The whole town is just waiting for a flashy car to pull up in the driveway. But it never happens. 
after the holidays, Sheriff Hicks requests a formal court of inquiry. These are typically done by someone who believes their friend or family member was met with foul play, but doesn't have proof. The Patterson's date is set for Monday, June 2nd, 1958, six months away. By the time the hearing rolls around, it's been nearly 15 months since anyone has last seen or heard from Pat or Margaret. Then, just two days before the inquiry is set to begin, David Smith receives a letter in the mail. It reads, quote, Dear Dave, we will not be back to El Paso, and by the time you get this, we will be out of the country and nobody can find us. We want our employees Art Doyle and Roth to each have one-fourth of the business. The other fourth must be divided equal among the other employees at the store. See that Art gets the house and furniture. Doyle is to get the cabin, tools, boats, and the Cadillac. Margaret wants her account to go to the Catholic Youth Organization. Yours truly, W.D. Patterson. The district attorney on the case rushes the letter to the Department of Public Safety in Austin. They ask a team of experts to verify whether the signature's legit. But immediately, the absence of Margaret's signature speaks volumes. If this was supposed to be some kind of living will, Pat knows Margaret would also have to sign. So some of the Patterson's friends fear the worst. Maybe Margaret couldn't sign the letter. Maybe she's dead. And her death has something to do with why Pat's on the run. On June 5th, 1958, forensic experts hand over their report. In short, they can't tell whether Pat's signature is real or not. But if it is a forgery, it's a damn good one. The person who penned it must have had access to several examples of Pat's real signature. That afternoon, Kirkland takes the stand, and his behavior is strange. He gives what reporter Bill Montgomery calls a hesitant testimony. He's indirect and takes long pauses as he searches for answers to what should be simple questions. The last person called to the stand is Pat's father, Luther Patterson. He says that this entire ordeal has Pat's name written all over it. Who knows what that means? But he tells the DA, quote, Pat will never be back. As he leaves the courtroom, a reporter voices a question that's been building for days. Mr. Patterson, do you think your son killed his wife? Luther says no. He denies the accusation outright. After the hearing, the investigation to find Margaret and Pat runs out of road for more than six months. Until February 1959, when a new El Paso sheriff named Bob Bailey gets a tip from Juarez, Mexico. The source says that last June, a Margaret M. Patterson checked into a luxury resort in Mexico, and there was a man with her. Coincidentally, this happened the same week William and Margaret's court of inquiry took place in Texas. So Sheriff Bailey drives to the Mexican resort armed with pictures of Margaret and Pat and starts asking questions. And guests immediately recognize Pat's picture. According to these guests, Pat went boating and fishing the week he stayed at the hotel. A concierge recognizes Margaret's picture, but says she only ever saw Margaret leaving her room for meals. The information stuns Bailey. After all this time, it seems like the Pattersons are alive that they wanted to disappear and did. But then in April, 2022, while conducting research for this episode, we received an email from the El Paso Sheriff's Department. It contained a witness statement from 1984, made almost 30 years after the Patterson's disappearance. 
and it completely changed my mind about what happened to them. So I wanna go back to the moment this statement was made. It's January 28th, 1984. A man named Ronaldo Nungaray walks into the El Paso Sheriff's Office and asks to speak with someone about the now infamous Patterson disappearance. He's directed to Detective Freddie Bonilla. Freddie would love to finally solve the case, but it's been 30 years. He's probably not expecting much to come out of this interaction, but then Ronaldo delivers a bombshell of a story. Born in Mexico, Reynaldo Nungaray always wanted to come to the United States. Back in 1956, he had a cousin, Guillermo Chavez, living in El Paso. Guillermo worked at Duffy's Inc. for Pat's friend and competitor, Duffy Sasser. Guillermo knew that Reynaldo wanted to move to the States. So he asked his manager at Duffy's, David Kirkland, if he could sponsor work papers for Reynaldo. Sure enough, Kirkland agreed. Now, I'm not sure about the specifics, but he helped Ronaldo get some kind of work visa. And by November, 1956, Ronaldo and his pregnant wife started a new life in the US. Kirkland hired him to clean and paint around the shop. The money was good and Ray saved every penny. For the first four months, everything was great. But on March 9th, a week before his wife was due to give birth, Kirkland asked Reynaldo to perform a special task at 3000 Piedmont Street, the Patterson's home. The next morning, Kirkland took Reynaldo to the empty house and opened the garage. Kirkland told Ray to clean the garage top to bottom. Any tools he finds, he should load into the 18-foot boat taking up most of the space. Most importantly, Kirkland said, Ray needed to stay in the garage. The house was off limits. Ray agreed and Kirkland drove off. But Ray says that even before he started cleaning, a chill ran through his spine. He felt totally unnerved. He spent the majority of the first day sorting through clutter. After he filled a big garbage bag with trash, he walked it to the garbage cans out back. As he did, he peered into the house through an open window. Sitting on the table inside, he saw two gold rings, one of which had a diamond set into it. There was also a women's gold watch. He didn't linger by the window. He got back to work. But then on day two, Ray was clearing sawdust off the floor when he noticed some rubber paint had spilled. It must have happened relatively recently because the thick puddle wasn't totally dry. Ray poured hot water on the spill to loosen it. He peeled the rubber off the floor and underneath it, he found a two foot wide pool of blood. He flew to his feet in shock and almost fell into the boat. Then as he scrambled to get up, he noticed something on the propeller, a piece of human scalp. That evening, Ray's cousin picked him up from the Pattersons around 5 p.m. But before they peeled out of the driveway, Kirkland pulled up behind Guillermo According to Ray, Kirkland seemed like he was in a rush. So much so, he didn't even notice Guillermo and Ray were there. They watched as Kirkland charged into the garage only to reemerge five minutes later with an armful of white sheets, stained with what looked like blood. He threw them into his trunk and sped off. Naturally, Ray was unnerved by everything he witnessed, but he couldn't go to the police. His wife was due to give birth any day now, and Kirkland sponsored his work papers. 
He likely knew about all the mass deportations from three years back and didn't feel like he could risk it. So feeling like he didn't have any other option, he went back to work for the third and final day of cleanup. When he went to take the garbage out back, he peered through the open window again and noticed that the rings and watch were gone. That night, he told his wife that he was sure someone was murdered in that house. When Ray is telling this to Detective Bonilla in 1984, he says it's not his first time coming forward. Six years ago in 1978, after he became a US citizen, he tried to speak to the sheriff at that time, Mike Sullivan, but Sullivan never followed up. Bonilla reacts very differently. After Reynaldo finishes his testimony, the detective quietly reopens the case, hoping to take it before a grand jury. But tragically, Ray Nungarai dies in a car accident two years later, taking any additional information with him. No movement has really happened in the Patterson's case since. And unfortunately, even now, Ray's testimony doesn't get the weight that I think it deserves. In 2009, the then sheriff of El Paso went on record saying that he believed the most likely explanation for the Patterson's disappearance was that they became Russian spies. Personally, I can't see how any of the evidence suggests that. I don't know exactly what happened to Pat and Margaret Patterson, but based on the facts that I have, I don't think the redhead who checked into the resort with Pat in June 1958 was Margaret Patterson. I can't say who she was, but I believe the real Margaret might have died on the night of March 5th, 1957. Margaret wasn't with Pat when he allegedly arrived in Juarez, Mexico the next day to speak with Estefania. She never reached out or signed her name on any piece of communication after that. Maybe Pat killed Margaret. Maybe the blood and human remains in the garage that Ray cleaned up were hers. If he wasn't involved in the murder, maybe Kirkland helped Pat cover it up afterward. I'm not saying that's the truth. There's so many loose threads that I still can't wrap my head around it. Like who drove Pat's Cadillac to the shop that day? Who was sending these telegrams? I can't be sure that Pat was alive after March 6th. At the end of the day, there's been no concrete proof. There's still so much in this case that remains in question. But perhaps the biggest tragedy is, I think we'd have a lot more answers if only Ray Nungarai felt comfortable speaking with police. Which brings me to a much bigger issue I wanna call out. For decades, undocumented community members have had to choose between reporting a crime and keeping their families together, which is a heartbreaking reality. Even in sanctuary cities, their federal authorities have been known to look into the resident status of a witness reporting a crime. In non-sanctuary cities, authorities can look into their family's background. For a long time, for non-citizens of the United States, coming forward to report a crime that took place on American soil was like playing a game of roulette. Thankfully, this is beginning to change. On Thursday, September 30th, 2021, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced that moving forward, immigration officers can't arrest and detain anyone solely because of their citizen status. Instead, those resources will be focused on arresting those who pose a threat to matters of national security. 
and there's evidence that these actions make communities safer. But while the Biden administration promises to fight for a path to citizenship for immigrants, they're also backtracking at the U.S.-Mexican border. They reinstated Title 42, which allows adult migrants to be deported without giving them a chance to apply for asylum, as is their right. There's so much work to be done. Allowing non-citizens to freely report crimes won't fix every crisis at the border. Of course, I know that. Far from it. But wouldn't it be something if people seeking asylum at our border had the right to report crimes that are happening at the border? What would change? It's going to be a long, hard battle to rectify what's happened. What's still happening? But you can start by contacting your congressional representative. Making reporting crimes safe for everyone ensures safer communities for everyone. And like I said, it could prevent cases like the Pattersons from going cold in the future. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Aaron Lan, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.